Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Did you know about 50 million Americans live with some form of chronic pain? And not surprisingly, celebrities including Paula Abdul, George Clooney, and Lady Gaga are all among them. Today, I'm here with Dr. Patrick Roth, Chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at Hackensack University Medical Center and Chair of Neurosurgery at Hackensack Meridian Medical School. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Roth. Thanks for having me, Kylie. So before we dive into all stuff, including pain management and chronic pain, what made you get into neurosurgery? Why did you start there as a doctor? Uh, interesting question. You know, I think looking back, um, my dad was a neurologist and he was someone that I kind of idolized. He loved the subject of neurology and so I went into medical school thinking I'd be a neurologist. But I uh, was a little disillusioned when I did my rotations in neurology because found the field to be a little bit impotent. I didn't think that um, it was you would sit around for hours and diagnose, and it was fascinating. But when it came time to treat, well, there was no treatment, so let's go to the next patient. And um, shockingly, because I never envisioned myself as a surgeon, when I went through my surgical rotation, I realized how much I enjoyed an actionable uh, profession and you know the idea of making decisions and acting. Um, so I combined the two, my love of neuroscience and uh, a, str a strange, unexpected desire to be a surgeon. That's awesome. So diving into pain management, what is it? What is pain management, like from the very top? You know, it's kind of interesting. I, I've always thought it's kind of a lost field. Um, I used to joke and call it pain mismanagement. And the issue is this, that pain is an incredibly complex subject and it, it can never be treated with a single medication or a single injection or a single surgery. And it really demands a, a comprehensive approach to it. And unfortunately, what happens in pain management a lot, at least in this state, is there's many, many different sort of solo practitioners who um, treat pain by giving uh, an injection or giving a medication. But it, it would be much better served if it was a coordinated field, in with the surgeons and in with the physiatrists and with a whole bunch of people that come together and, and, and maybe psychologists and treat pain more comprehensively. That's interesting that you mentioned psychology because I was reading about George Clooney and his bouts with pain management and chronic pain and all of his surgeries for that matter. And a doctor shared with him that pain is a state of mind and that you can change your pain tolerance based on a change of mindset which I found super fascinating. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, absolutely. And, you know, we can talk more about mindsets later if you want because they're so important in medicine in general. But, uh, you know, think about this. If a soldier is, this has been documented many times, if a soldier is injured in battle, say he gets his arm blown off uh, and he's fearing for his life, um, but when he gets back to the hospital and realizes he's going to be finally safe, he also realizes a lot of times that he didn't even feel the pain of his arm being blown off. Once he knows that he's safe, like this, the, the pain kicks in. 
So there's an, that's an example of the brain actually turning off pain. Or people who walk across hot coals, for example, mm-hmm. they don't even feel the pain of that. They've learned how to use their brain to turn it off. Or probably uh, an example that makes even more sense to you is the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Think about the placebo effect. If, if I give you a pill and you have pain and I tell you the pill is a painkiller and it's just a sugar pill, we know that it will help your pain. And so one of the, you know, it's, what's interesting is how does the brain do that? It's not just the way the brain thinks about it. The brain is connected to an endogenous or, you know, a natural system of pain stifling that we all have. So, for example, if I give you a sugar pill and you think it's a pain medication, your brain will cause your body to secrete endorphins and enkephalins, which are natural painkillers. They're actually opiates that you make in your own body. So it's not so mysterious. It's actually the brain um, starting a reaction that's already built into us. Do you ever prescribe just sugar pills and thinking that someone's pain is managed through mindset? Yeah. No, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Because, by the way, the placebo effect works even when the patient knows it's a placebo. No, I haven't done that regularly, but I do spend a lot of time with my patients helping them to frame their pain. You know, one, the, way, the way I look at pain, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's a model that people should think about. I look at pain as having three different components or aspects. The first is obvious. You know, a nerve is being pinched or irritated. That's intuitive to people. If I take a knife and stab it into your thigh, you know, I'll, ca- I'll catch some nerves and you'll feel pain. That makes all sense. But there's two other aspects to pain that people don't necessarily think about. And the third one is relevant to your question, I think. The second aspect to pain is that our, the body is very, very adaptive. And when there's pain, it changes to try to reduce the pain. So in what I do, which is back surgery, people get back spasms. Uh, if the body senses something's wrong or nerve is being irritated, their muscles will clench up in their back. This is done for teleologic reasons or for reasons that have a purpose. If you immobilize the spine, for example, with muscle spasm, the body can allow itself to heal. But sometimes that adaptation to pain actually causes pain itself. So we know muscle spasm is painful, often a lot more painful than the underlying thing that caused it. And finally, the brain has a mindset or I, I in, in my I've written a couple books and in my first book I talk about the judicial function of the brain um, and the brain judges the pain and decides whether or not uh, it's going to stifle it or enhance it and so there's a tremendous um, cognitive aspect to pain in fact a lot of pain therapy can be done cognitively what we call cognitive behavioral therapy yeah kind of you know changing that threshold that you have you know if it's a pain that you have every day it might be different in you than me because of our different mindsets and our threshold yeah you know what's funny is you know we have a code in in medicine and that is when a patient comes in and says that they have a high threshold of pain we kind of joke and say it's always exactly the opposite (laughs) but the truth of the matter is when people can measure others pain thresholds by looking at how your blood pressure or pulse changes to electrical stimulation, for example. And it turns out that most people's pain threshold is relatively similar. It's their mindset that differs. And it, it's, it's also, it's not specific for one thing. So for example, you have people, who, go back to soldiers again, who can be incredibly 
tolerant of pain in a battlefield. Mm-hmm. But when they have a blood draw on there, you know, yeah, they miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and vice, so it's, um, it's so interesting. That it's the way the brain frames a particular situation that determines to a large extent what the pain is going to be like. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And how would you be able to evaluate someone's pain? Because everyone's pain is basically different. Yeah. And so, you know, it's really difficult. You can't get inside the body. It's like asking someone to describe what the color red looks like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, you're not going to get there. But um, so we, we have scales. We, you know, we let people describe their own pain. So it's really a subjective thing, which makes it really difficult because um, it varies so much from individual to individual. Yeah. And then do you find yourself, maybe someone says like, oh, my pain in my back is a 10. And then you go in there for surgery, and it's like, oh, well, this really wasn't anything. Yeah, although, you know, I always I tend to trust what the patient says more than what I see because it, it, I've gone in there at times, and again, this may relate to the placebo effect, but I've gone in times in surgery and said, this doesn't look so bad. And the patient comes out of surgery and says, oh, my gosh, thank you. I'm so much better. Yeah. I scratch my head and think, was it my surgery or the placebo effect? Yeah. No, no, it doesn't really matter because the patient's better. Exactly. So it doesn't really matter on whether or not it was here nor there. Patient's better, patient's walking out, and that's what that's what counts. Yeah. Um, in terms of like treatment of pain and home remedies and anything like that, anything you can share on those things? Uh, I'll tell you something. That what I've always found interesting, and I don't know how important this is, but uh, if you think about what the home remedy staple is for most people it's anti-inflammatories and mm-hmm. ice and uh, what I find so interesting about that is that yes it does make people feel better but I never choose that for myself because those two, think about the way they work when you give ice you're diverting blood flow away from an area and when you give anti-inflammatories you're preventing pain but you're also preventing the healing process so what's ironic is that when we give anti-inflammatories and ice, we may make the patient feel better, but it slows down the healing process. So I've always felt for me, I'd rather heal faster and have the pain than do that. And so so that traditional remedy to me, you have to question. Um, There's all sorts sorts of other homeopathic remedies, tree bark, um, certain spices Mm -hmm. that can make pain better. But again, I'm always weary of a medications uh, alone as a treatment for pain. Again, it has to be comprehensive. We have to work on mindset, work on the body itself physically, and, and sprinkle a little bit of pain medication on top of that, but not make it the central part of the pain control. So if you were to sprinkle some of the medicine, sprinkle some of the anti-inflammatories, what would be like your go-to? Would it be Tylenol or you know ibuprofen or yeah. acetaminophen? So Interestingly enough, when Tylenol has been looked at as a painkiller, objectively, it doesn't do very much. Um, The anti-inflammatories definitely work, and they work the best. And uh, one thing I always tell patients is there's a couple different ways to give anti-inflammatories. So to answer your question specifically, I I like uh, ibuprofen and naproxen the most. And the reason I like them is that if if you take a couple of ibuprofen or Advil or Motrin, they're all the same thing, People always call it taking an anti-inflammatory, but you're actually taking an analgesic in that dose. It has a different mechanism depending on how you take it. So if you take a couple here and there, 
it's an analgesic. But if you take, for example, three at a time, three times a day for five days, it becomes an anti-inflammatory. It has a totally different mechanism of action. So if someone really has an inflammatory process, I tend to give them anti-inflammatories around the clock for a number of days. And then I give them a reprieve after, say, five days to give their stomach a chance to rest because that's the biggest problem with anti-inflammatories. They can cause gastritis Mm -hmm. or inflammation of the stomach. Um, So I like that one. There's, you know, if you think about pain medication, there's a limited number of categories. So we just talked about what we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, naproxen and ibuprofen. There's also steroidal anti-inflammatories, which are even more potent. Of course, they have more side effects as well. And those, that's the anti-inflammatory approach. There's a, a narcotic approach, which has come under scrutiny, of course, lately in this country, and rightly so. But um, those are narcotics. Uh, there's a new emerging treatment, cannabis, mm-hmm. uh, extracts of marijuana. Um, and then there's two alternative medications, which are interesting. One is antidepressants have been shown to be helpful in certain types of pain in, in maybe lower doses than you need for depression. And finally, anti-convulsants, anti-seizure medications are used for pain. And so and, and the other, other category is, is muscle relaxers, which is a little bit different. Um, but anyway, so you can use these. Things. I, I like to use them in lower doses in combination. Some of them are mind-altering, so you can't drive on them. It affects people's work. Some of them are addictive, so you have to be careful with that. Um, one of the things is that if you prescribe medications for pain, you really need to have close scrutiny of the patient, and uh, you can't let the patient dictate what the patient takes. You have to stay on top of it because you can create addictions, which are disasters. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned two of the, I feel like the most talked about being opioids and yeah. cannabis being yeah. such hot topics right now in today's media. Are those two that you stay away from or you feel that they do help or anything like that? You know, I think they can be very helpful in very short-term uses. For example, when people have acute nerve pain, nothing really touches that. Steroids work the best, and I typically give a combination of steroids and narcotic, but I stop the narcotic, and because and you have to stay on top of it. I don't know if, you know, one of the things the listeners should uh, consider is the, I don't know if it's Netflix, but one of the uh, stations is this program, Dope Sick. Yes. Have you seen it? Yes. It's we just, actually talked about it um, earlier this year yeah. on our podcast. It's an incredible show. It's incredible, on Hulu. So incredible acting, incredibly moving, and I lived that. So I was a doctor prescribing medications at the time when OxyContin, came into vogue and I remember being told and I remember believing at first the reps would come in and say it's not addictive it's got a slow onset it's not addictive and if it's not working you got to increase the dose and I heard that and I started doing it out of trust and luckily even before the whole opioid epidemic became exposed I recognized in my own patients this was not good I saw people losing their jobs marriages breaking up all sorts of bad things and I realized for myself hey this is a problem. And I and the other thing about it is we talked earlier about pain tolerance. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things you have to ask yourself is this. Why does an opioid work in the first place? Right? Why do we have receptors in our body that these opioids can bind to? And it gets back to what I said before. We have an endogenous, a natural system of, of secreting our own painkillers, right? And we have receptors for that. When you take 
opioids, or that's exogenous medication going into your body, your receptors are downgraded, or you stop producing your own opioids. So what happens is when you come off the opioid, or when it wears off after a dose, your pain tolerance actually goes down. You know, I have one of the diseases, fibromyalgia, which we can talk about later if you want, which is really an uh, exaggerated sensitivity to pain. And we don't have a mechanism for it, but I can tell you one thing. Giving people chronic pain medication creates a fibromyalgia state in patients. And so ironically, if someone's been on narcotics for a long time, if they can methodically, and it takes a lot of courage to do this, but if they can methodically taper off of those narcotics, they will actually have less pain. And it just blows people's mind because it doesn't make sense to them. But you actually have less pain once you're off. Coming off is a is a bear. Yeah. But once you're off, it uh, you're actually better off. Well, it's almost like that's why you have to take more because you're killing what you already have. So you need more to that's right. kind of supplement it. Yeah. Which is just wild that yeah. all of that happens in the brain. Yeah. Brain's a fascinating organ. It really is. So today it's raining outside, and I don't mean to date this, but a lot of people say that, oh, my joints hurt because of the weather. The air, the way the air is. Is there any truth to the weather dictating whether or not you have any sort of pain? Well, let me give you that. I have to give you that answer in a twofold answer because it's really strange. So <laughs> it the is very strange. So the, the concept is that when the barometric pressure diminishes... Right. Uh, pain starts and there are thousands of patients who complain about this and they are absolutely adamant about it and what's also interesting is it's much more prevalent in the early part of an injury so if you get an injury of some type the first year for example that phenomenon is more evident than it is say after a year however when it's been tested blindly uh, patients aren't nearly as good as they think they are in predicting the weather. <laughs> so all patients say they can do it, but when it's when actually put to the test in yeah. a real experiment, it doesn't work as well as they say. But I think the answer to that is yes, people can. I, I just hear it too much and from too many oh, patients so that they can predict the weather. And I, it's, I think it's related to literally diminishing barometric pressure because when the barometric pressure drops, the weather gets nasty. I came across a bunch of these questions and they it's listed itself as the problem and then something else and then what type of pain medication you should take for each. Do you feel like, you know, regardless of your splitting headache or a migraine, muscle pains, back pain, things like that, you know, something like an anti-inflammatory should be the first stop of defense? Maybe in general, yes, because, you know, the... It has the lowest sort of risk profile to it. But one of the things that you try to do is you try to you try to understand the etiology of the pain. And then if you can understand that, sometimes there's a specific type of pain medication. To give you an example, a migraine headache, yeah. which is presumed to be a vascular origin headache. Maybe instead of using an anti-inflammatory to start with that, you would use a vasoconstrictor to start with that. Um, or if you know someone has really bad back spasm and they're having back pain, maybe a muscle relaxant before an anti-inflammatory. But for the most part, I think, yes, you, you want to avoid the mind-altering pain medication 
because that can be dangerous, especially if people try to drive on it or they fall walking up or downstairs. And there's a lot of stuff that happens when people are on pain medication. Yeah. So kind of before they see you, start with the anti-inflammatories and then they see you and you can come up with a plan. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting, so here's, this is really interesting. The, or, the insurance companies try to make it so that they, patients don't see me. They try to make it so patients don't get an MRI, for example. And of course, that's just to save money. And that makes sense from their perspective. But it's never made sense to me in terms of what is good care. If someone has, someone has pain for three days, and of course they don't need an MRI, and of course the natural history of that pain is likely to go away. But when people have had pain, say back pain, which is what I deal with, for several months, I always start with an MRI. The insurance company doesn't want me to do it because they know it leads to expensive treatments. Mm -hmm. So they try to limit that. But in my mind, let's figure out what it is. So I have been fascinated since the early part of my career in finding that elusive pain generator in back pain. You know, it's like a black box uh, some of the time. But some of the time, you can get to the bottom of it and really understand the pain. And I use some interesting modalities. The MRI is a wonderful test for looking at what you look like on the inside. It shows you what your discs look like, what your joints look like, what your nerves look like, etc. And... Uh, but if that doesn't reveal, there's a couple other interesting tests we use that people don't think about. One is a, our dynamic tests. We use something called flexion extension films of the spine. So if it's a, the low back, for example, we'll have a patient bend forward and backward under x-ray and see what the vertebrae look like relative to each other in those two positions. And you can do that while the x-ray is taking pictures? You can do pictures? it live or you can just do one at the end of flexion and one at the end of extension. But what you're really looking for, does the alignment change? If you see an alignment at a particular segment of the spine, that is very, very powerful information about where the pain may be coming from. And finally, we have this new modality. It's been around for about 10 years. It's called SPECT-SCAN. And what that is, we inject a material called technetium into the vein of a patient. That technetium is um, labeled with a nuclear tail, so we can see where it goes. And then we can take that crude image, because it's a nuclear scan, it looks like a snowstorm. But we can take that crude image and fuse it to the MRI or the CAT scan that's already been done. And it can give us information about inflammation. So not only does it tell us what level of the spine it is, but it tells us if it's in the facet joints or in the disc space or even outside the spine, another part of the skeleton. So it, those three tests, the MRI and, and the flexion extension films and the SPECT scan, in more than 50% of the cases of back pain can localize the pain. And so we can be really targeted with our treatment. Right, and then you could figure out, once you figure out what's wrong, you can figure out how to fix it. That's right. Now, if you can't figure out what's wrong, which is almost 50% of the time, yeah. then you go to the things we talked about earlier. You go to the whole mind-body. You know, the mind-body um, relationship is amazing. It's, it's a synergistic relationship and you can attack it through the body or the mind. So I've had a lifelong interest in strengthening the body to help with back pain, for example, uh, and also strengthening the mind to help with back pain. And the two go hand in hand. Um, there's a psychological uh, uh, word, uh, it's called um, embodied cognition. And what embodied cognition is, it's, it, here's an example of it. If I gave you a whole host of questions to answer about how your life is going and then compared that to a whole bunch of questions you'd answer about how your life is going with a pencil, in your, so you're holding a pencil in your teeth, which, by the way, forces you into a smiling position. The fact that you were smiling would make your 
answers more optimistic than if you weren't smiling. That's an example of the body having an effect on the mind. We did something a couple of years ago called um, laughter yoga, which is basically just that, where you're forced to laugh, even if it's a fake laugh, while you're doing all these different things and yoga moves and things like that. And you come out of it actually laughing and actually happier because even a fake laugh is still giving you those endorphins. Yeah. Everyone knows you laugh because you're happy, but people tend to underrate the fact that you're happy because you laugh. Right. It's the, it's, and again, it's the mind-body. That, that is embodied cognition. Or if, you, if I asked you to answer a whole bunch of questions about, you know, that had the subject old, gray, decrepit, and then actually watched how fast you walked out of the room, you'd walk slower than if the questions were about green, verdant, supple. It's really amazing how the mind-body influences itself. And, and you can attack that in people with chronic pain. Yeah, it sounds like you can kind of attack it in a, a similar way, maybe changing, again, changing their mindset would really change maybe their pain. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because earlier today I was mentioning to one of my colleagues about how we're talking today about pain and pain management. And he was saying that on a podcast he recently listened to that the host shared that pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. Almost talking like how pain can be a mindset and can be changed because it depends on how much you actually suffer. So I thought that was super, super interesting. Well, in fact, you know, so you know, for animals, everyone thinks animals don't really suffer. They have pain, but they don't suffer. Suffer is a human construct. And what's really interesting is, and the statistics are very uh, good here, if you go to any place in the world and you measure, ask people if they have back pain, 20% at any given time will have back pain. 40% will have had back pain in the last year, and 80% will have had back pain at some point in their lives. And that doesn't vary anywhere you go. But if you go to different societies, for example, Africa, um, there's almost zero disability from back pain, zero suffering from back pain. And yet in Western societies, there's tremendous amounts of suffering. Suffering is a cultural, not only a human thing, but a cultural thing that's, that, that varies from culture to culture. And, uh, and so to me, that's a very positive thing because yeah. you can't stop that pain but you can stop the way we react to the pain, the way we interpret the pain. That gets back to the judicial function of the brain we talked about earlier. Yeah, oh, that's just fascinating. Okay, so is there any way to prevent pain? I mean, that's a loaded question. I feel like the answer is no. <laughs> well, I think you can, In yes, in the back you can, So, or actually in many different parts of the body. One thing to remember about the body is any pain that relates to joints of the body, Joints are held together by connective tissue, ligaments, tendons, etc. But the main stabilizer of a joint and protector of the joint is the muscle that subserves that joint. So, for example, if you have strong biceps and triceps muscles, you will not only reduce pain that you have in your elbow, but you will protect or prevent pain in your elbow. And that's very true of the back, you know, that core strengthening and back strengthening are not only um, therapeutic for back pain, but preventative for back pain. Now, other things, some things you can't prevent, right? But uh, definitely pain related to joints can be prevented through muscle strengthening. So much benefit to exercise in so many things. I always tell my patients, you'd be foolish not to engage. One thing that's really interesting about health and healthcare and, 
and relates to pain is that education is an independent determinant of health. And so it's really important for patients to, when they have pain, no matter where it is, learn about that organ, learn the physiology, anatomy, learn about, if they take pain medications, learn about the pain medications, understand the side effects, understand how they work. Uh, one thing we touched on earlier was the, this concept of chronic pain, which I think is a really interesting subject. It is, uh, there are millions of people in the world with chronic pain, and people misunderstand what chronic pain is. Chronic pain is not pain that's lasted for a long time, which you may think. Chronic pain has a different uh, meaning, and what it really means is that pain persists despite the fact that whatever initially caused it has either been shown to have healed or has had the time to have healed. And yet, some people's pain persists. And the medical, our medical system does not have a good answer for those people. And, you know, and, and so that pain, remember we talked about being stabbed in the thigh earlier. Mm-hmm. Even though you, I have stabbed you in the thigh, that pain is being experienced in your brain, not in your thigh. And so the idea of chronic pain is that some type of uh, negative loop has been set up in the brain. So the, the, brain, the pain will persist even though the body, and, and by the way, once that happens, treating the part of the body that hurts is never going to work because it's in the brain. And so we have to start thinking in a, as a medical system about ways to go after the brain part of that pain. You know, maybe cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, I believe exercise through the stuff we talked about, the embodied yeah. cognition. We talked about uh, cognitive, I'm sorry, embodied cognition that we talked about earlier. Um, but I just think chronic pain takes a different approach than we do now. What do we do now? We throw those people on pain medication. And we know how bad that can be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw it in dope sick. We know how bad that, that, that can end up, especially if you're prescribed some type of opioid. Yeah. People should watch that show just to get a sense of, um, I think if they watched it, they'd be a lot less apt to take the medication. We spoke with a colleague of ours um, who is in our behavioral health realm department um, and we spoke about dope sick in great detail whoever's listening to this should go back and listen to that podcast um, but it was just mind-boggling to even to be able to see and to be able to understand that yes at first these people were told and they tried to prevent their pain but the reality is that they can't come off of it without some form of help because they are experiencing worse pain than they did before. So it's just, it's very fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, part of the problem is that um, patients often come in expecting quick fix. Mm -hmm. And the very few things have a quick fix. Most things require a slow fix. And that expectation should be set in advance by the practitioner. And um, once that is set, the patient understands there's no quick way to not being in pain. They'll be more willing to try other things. Yeah. And I, I mean, quick fix is something that our society just really has been bread and butter on. Because think about it. If you need milk, you just run to the store down the street because it's right there. And you can, it's a quick fix. It's a, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, um, instant gratification yeah. Yeah. Um, is what our society lives on right now. So it makes sense that they come to you thinking this is a quick fix. This may be tangential, but the there was I don't know if the listeners are familiar, but it's to me a fascinating study. 
it's called, they call it the marshmallow study. I think it was back in uh, the early 60s. And the, what the study was, they took these kids and they gave them a, essentially gave them a marshmallow and then told them, uh, I'm going to leave the room for a few minutes. You can either eat the marshmallow or if you can hold off eating it till I come back, we'll give you two marshmallows. And what's so fascinating about the study is that they looked at these kids for the next 40 or 50 years and the kids that could resist the, uh, the marshmallow and wait for the second one ended up you know, having better, doing better in school, higher SAT scores, better marriages, better jobs, happier jobs. And so delayed gratification ends up being one of the most important um, traits that someone can have. And, and I believe it can be taught. Absolutely. So it's just something, and, and same thing with, and it's the same thing with health and health care. Patients should learn to be patient with their health. Uh, take slow fix approaches, exercise, diet, sleeping properly, handling stress properly, etc. Well, sometimes the slow fix might be your end all be all. Whereas a quick fix, you might come back for multiple quick fixes. That's right. So, I mean, it makes sense. Actually, the study that you were talking about was viral, I feel like, in the past year or two on TikTok, where a lot of people were taping their kids and they gave them like a bowl of candy or right? a couple of okay. cookies or something. They're like, mommy's going to be right back. And they taped them to see who ate who ate the food that they put in front of them and who didn't. Um, and it was very, very cute. But that's probably where that study came from. Yeah. Maisel, that was the uh, the author on the study. Well, thank you so much for sure. being here today, Dr. Roth. Well, thank you for having me. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.